theyeshiva.net. Daf Chavches, column one, yeah, page fifty-five, around twenty. One, two, three, four, five, six. Around nineteen lines, uh, around twenty, uh, twenty-two lines from the bottom. The line starts lizulase. We read a few words yesterday, but I'll repeat. The bitl of the alul, which is davuk in the ilah, we explained that there is the alul the way it's separate from the ilah. The alul the way it uh, becomes autonomous. And the alul the way it's davuk, it's connected to its ilah. Ilah means its source, its origin, its own its own shayrish, where it comes from. The metaphor for this is It's like the embryo, the fetus, the uber, the child that's pregnant when he's still in the womb of its mother. It's not a distinct entity. Eats what its mother eats, Chazal say, drinks what its mother drinks. It's a continuum of the life and the organism of the mother. It doesn't even have the ability to function independently. If it's born immaturely, eh, prematurely, often it cannot uh, function. It doesn't have yet, uh, it's not ripe yet to be able to function as an independent organism that needs its mother. Rather, it's a continuum of the mother. Ubar yerech as we explained yesterday by Riches, that's the ultimate attachment where you're part of something else. One day, the kavana is not to stay in the womb of your mother. It's not a very geschmack, but that's not the kavana. It's not a mice about the Alter Rebbe. It's a very interesting story. Uh, he married a woman. Her name was Sterner, Rebetzin Sterner. That was his wife's name. And um, this was a man who lived in a city called Vitebsk. Vitebsk is not far from Lyazhna, where the Balatanya grew up and where he lived most of his life, which is the little towns, little cities in Belarus. They're still there. You could visit them. I mean, there's nothing left of any Jewish life there because the Germans wiped it all out. But Lyazhna, Vitebsk, it's uh, Belarus, very close to Lithuania. It used to be called White Russia. Vice Ruslan. Today it's called Belarus. And um, so, you know, as a, as, a young, as a young man, his reputation preceded him, and his father-in-law was a very successful man, very wealthy man. And Talmud uh, Chachem, he was considered a very distinguished person in Vitebsk, one of the, the renowned people in the Kehillah, in the community. So he took him as a, as a son-in-law. Later, when he went to the Magad of Mizrich, his father-in-law, that generation, there was this strong uh, conflict between the Chassidim and the Misnagadim. So his father-in-law found out, and he was from that position, so he got very upset and angry, and uh, he did a few things. First of all, he cut him off financially, to the point that once, Friday night, he came home from shul late, and uh, he locked all the cabinets. There shouldn't be any, uh, no food, no kiddush, nothing. Like these types of things. He started to persecute him. And the main thing he wanted, his wife should give him a divorce. 
forget. And started, uh, was very, very complicated. His wife, I guess she got to know her husband, and she, uh, she rejected her father, which was, she was, she was young. So he completely cut them off and excommunicated them and banned them, and uh, from then they lived in a lot of poverty. And then the Balatanya, at some point he moved to Lyajna, back where he grew up. He became the, what's called, what's called the Magad of Lyajna. His shver's name was Rabbi Yehuda Leib Segel. Segel. After his father-in-law passed away, years later, his mother-in-law inherited all of his assets and whatever he owned. He was very wealthy. She was a little, uh, I guess, smarter than her husband. So she called in her son-in-law and she said, listen, now that he's gone, you know, times have changed. And uh, come back. And I'll support everything. I'll pay for everything. <laughs> you don't have to... Because uh, he didn't have our chav. It was, it was very hard. All the years in Liajna. It was not easy. It was very little money. And it was, so she said, I'll, if you come back, I'll put you back on the... You know, on the... Payroll. On payroll. But I'll cover everything. I'll... The shulma, the, I'll everything I'll cover. So the Altarebbe thanked her. And he said, as a kind, in the boich from the mama is the best at sight. The Gemara says in Masech Nida, that some of you just finished, that there's no good days in life like the days in the, in the womb of the mother. The tinek, the, the tinek is there, near dolok a candle burning on his head. They teach him the whole Torah. It says, yeah, there's no stress. You don't have to make uh, ends meet. Uh, it's a mechaya. The good, real, the real good old days. The good old days. I'm a kumtarais. He says, "One megachin is tzedek." Despite, despite its greatness, he says, "You don't go back." This was his way of explaining to the shvige that uh, <laughs> it's not the time to come back. So, and, and the two are dependent on each other. When the dveikas in the ilah, which the marshal for that is the pregnancy, is successful, the fetus gets all that it gets and it develops, then can be stage two, which is the emergence. That's what he says. What's the definition of birth? That the fetus becomes a yesh. Meaning a separate, distinct entity. And when it's in the womb, it's not considered a yesh b'fneyatzme. Of course there's a child there, but what is the child? The definition of the child is just a continuum of the mother's life. Pashat from a biological point of view. And therefore also from a spiritual point of view. What's birth? Birth is yesh b'fneyatzme. It takes time, but until... Maturity reaches different stages until the stage where he suddenly starts communicating to somebody else. In the womb, the fetus is not communicating. Why? It's a state of silence. Remember, the closer the Olul goes back to the Ila, the less words. Because words means, I'm a mashpia, I'm now a giver, I'm a teacher, I'm a communicator. And when I'm in a state of receptivity of Kabbalah, is silence. That was the whole idea we discussed yesterday at length, right? The attachment versus the independence. 
the more the attachment, which is the state of bitl, oneness with the illah, then it could be ready to go out and become a man or a woman, quite literally. Now in that itself, the stages of yesh b'fneatzmi, when an infant is born, you don't say, go. Unlike many animals, mammals, right? Sometimes a few hours after they're born, I was once driving, and a gazelle right nearby, there was a gazelle that was born. It was born. It emerged. <laughs> and it's lying on the floor, you know, a little clumsy. I don't know, like 20 seconds later, it, boop, and it's running. It's life. Yeah, it was still experimenting with its legs and learning about life. And I'm like, wow, it takes us 50 years to grow up. And even then, we're not sure we're adults yet, right? Present company excluded. But like that was fast, 10 seconds, boom, come on. Come on, little guy. <laughs> around. It's time to emerge. But I think the clay, one of the Mepharshim says, Nasa Adam, Vayemriyalakim, Nasa Adam, let us make man. Let us, Nasa, what's let us make man? That, uh, I think the Klayaka, one of the Mepharshim says, that one of the mammals, the mammals usually shortly after birth, they're already pretty developed. Yes, you still have to learn, you know, some of the, some of the behaviors and patterns of, of mommy or tati. You know, you're dealing with cubs of lions or other predators. They have to learn and grow up and see how to do everything. But there's a certain development that comes very fast. After birth by a person, he calls it a yesh b'fnei but still, the child can't eat on its own. The child needs its mother for nursing and for TLC and to take care of it. But the point is, it's already, you can't say the child is what? Just an extension just a continuum of the mother, not biologically, and therefore not conceptually. The Allah already has made a leap, and that's the leap of in the womb to outside the womb, the moment we call birth. Now there's stages. There's first month, there's the second month, there's six months, there's a year, there's two years, until the point is, when he can start speaking. Start speaking already means that he's already so opinionated, right, and it starts sharing. And again, in speaking itself, there's of course stages. Just like in eating, there's stages. First, he's just eating what his mother eats, meaning his mother is not feeding him. He's just living off the mother's food and the mother's oxygen and the mother's blood circulation. Then starts living off his own blood circulation, but still has to be fed by the mother. And then comes, and then comes a point where he's eating on his own or she's eating literally their own food. And even then, it's not much yet. It's because still, mommy and tati are taking care of this child, even as a baby. But then there's growth and growth until there is that complete separation to the point of marriage where the Pasuk says in Bereshus Al-Kain, Yazov ish, es aviv ves imoy, v'davak There comes a point where you say goodbye to father and mother and cleave to a woman where the person becomes the ultimate mashpia, they can become the progenitor of a whole new generation, as a father or as a mother. So there's stages. But the quantum leap is the moment of birth. It's a really new metzius. From a place of dvekas, of the alul and the ilah, there's now the alul emerges. You're now a separate person. And halachically, it's also a separate person. When it comes to abortion, once the baby is born, 
Right? As the Rambam puts it, ain't doich nefesh nefesh. You can't push away one soul for another soul. And this is all a metaphor for what we've been discussing. The bitl hayeshes, the yesh goes back, so to speak, to its ila, where there's always achdos, where there's oneness. That's the birir hanetzoitzis ma'almim alumim. That's where there's unity, because the, the disunity is in the distance of the source. And the more closeness to the source, the more silence there is the more receptivity, the more bittle. And as we discussed, always the two are dependent on each other. When you could cleave to your source, then you can emerge healthy, successful, and actually communicate. Dibur is the form, not just, not just technically speaking, it's the whole idea of giving, of communicating, of being, of being responsible, of leadership. Leadership requires strong confidence and independence. If my attachment is wholesome, my detachment and independence can be wholesome. If my attachment is wounded, you schlepped out that baby prematurely, and I don't only mean physically, but also emotionally and spiritually, you separate, come on, be a man, what did you do? You just killed this child. The child needs to sit in the incubator and not be independent, on the contrary, in order for them to be independent. (laughs) For the yesh to be able to be a yesh, that operates successfully and effectively from a place of wholesomeness, it has to have the time when it is davuch in the illa, when it's completely silent, when the fetus is not responsible to generate its own life force and certainly generate its own source of life and generate and navigate its own journey. The same is true, this was a muscle for how the birurim work. The whole mime is about birurim, the birur, right? The birur is the clarifying, the sublimating of the nitzitz in everything. That the avoid is that the birurim, the birurim are all the divine sparks. What's the divine spark? Identifying everything as part of divine oneness and infinity. So the person brings it up in a process called Mayan Nukvin, feminine waters, which is always a metaphor for the arousal from below in the relationship between the Zacher and the Nekeva, there's what's called Mad and Man. We learned it a few times, right? Mad, that Rizal says, Mad is Mayan Dukhrin, masculine waters. Man is Mayan Nukvin, feminine waters. It's the male flow and the feminine flow. And it represents two stages in the relationship. Sometimes a relationship is triggered and inspired by one side and sometimes by the other side. Sometimes by a mashpia, sometimes by a makabal. Sometimes the main interest is triggered through man, mayin nukvin, the feminine flow, so to speak. And mayin dukhrin is the masculine flow. Whenever it goes up, it's a marshal for our relationship with Hashem. There's something called the Sarusa de la and Sata, an arousal from above or an arousal from below. An arousal from above, meaning you're just doing your thing. And sometimes God decides to reach out and inspire you. That's called mad, mayin duchrin, a masculine flow, metaphorically. And sometimes you are the one who initiates the contact, the relationship, the intimacy, and that would be called man, 
Mayin Nukvin, which is the feminine flow, the waters, the orgasmic flow of the feminine, which represents Isarusa Vilasata, the arousal from below. Because as you know in Yiddishkeit, all physical biology is always a mirror of spirituality, right? It's never detached. The two are not detached. That's what birur means. Birur means that the world of relationships, the world of intimacy, sometimes people wonder, why would uh, Chassidus and Kabbalah use these words for <laughs> for the relationship? Like you're dealing with spiritual stuff, you have to... Uh, what's with Tzniyas and all that. So of course it can be distorted when somebody wants to distort it. But... It's really, any other understanding is a distortion, because it's God's world. <laughs> My, mad and man are not filthy things. Man and mad is, this is God's world, this is Kedusha. Can somebody uh, detach it from the source? Of course. That's that's what we're talking about. Ma'alma ma'luma means that you see the truth of what's mad and what's man. So essentially it's the other way around. The real mitzias of mad and man, biologically, is a reflection of the relationship between God and a person. That's what it is. This is very important. It's not the other way around. We often experience the world from a distorted place, and then we say, why are you mixing in these filthy things into Ruchlis? It's the other way around. That's the distortion. Mad and man are reflections of the spiritual oneness of how to become one. So there's the process of mad, there's the process of man. The fact that when some people hear the words, they right away associate it with their own struggles in this particular field. So this is what they have to work on, to be able to see things from a more pristine and pure perspective. But essentially, the mushal is always a part of the nimshal. It ascends... In a state, what's called feminine words, feminine words, and the sparks become pregnant. Again, this is all terminology that he's using, right, from Kabbalah, which biology is just a reflection of it. It becomes pregnant in the yisoid of the femininity, just like a fetus, the ilah. And the Alul are now one. The Alul is absorbed in the Ilah. Where is it? It's called Yisoyde Nukva. Yisoyde Nukva is the lower part. Thank you. The lower part of the Nukva of the femininity which carries the womb where the baby is carried. Nukva is femininity. The female is called Nukva in Aramaic from the word Nekeva. The male is called Dukhra. So spiritually, yeah, femininity is Malchus. The Birurim, remember from Ma'ilam Hasiyah, Yitzirah, Briah, are now going back and being absorbed in the Yisoyed of Nukva, which is in the femin- feminine source, like the baby in the womb. Da'ainu Shemitchila. Now, what this is, Lashon of Kabbalah. What's the Lashon of Chsidis? Da'ainu Shemitchila, Hoyu Bukhines Yesh Vidavar Bifneyatzma. Where before the Birur of the Nitzites is everything is separate, it's on its own. And therefore, it also has the power to be mashpia, to give, because when you're independent, you can give. 
when there's bitter and the nitzutz is now absorbed. It goes up and it's absorbed in this process called mayanukvin, in a state of alignment with Ein Seif, and completely connected. This bitter is called pregnancy. This is the second interpretation of alumim, not sheaves, but silence. When the intensity of bitl, so there's no ability to communicate to somebody else, like the fetus. Before this ascent and this pregnancy, he was in a state of separateness. To speak, to give. Through this halah of the nitzaytzis, it experiences this moment of silence. That's ma'almim alumim. So that's the, the, the nekuda that he's, that he's communicating here in this chalik of the Maimer, that all dibu represents is hashpa, and all hashpa comes when there's a certain element of yesh, whenever there is the bitl of the yesh, going back to the source like the fetus in the womb of its mother, it's always expressed by the silence. When a person is in a state of Kabbalah, receptivity, they're silent, and the more the state of Makabal, the deeper the silence, because silence itself has so many different levels. You know, how silent are you? And then there is that moment of complete silence, utter silence, utter bitl, when the person is not even in the position to be able to speak, because they're completely in a state of, there's no self-assertion, they're completely in a state of Kabbalah. And in order to be able to speak, there has to be some independent I that emerges. Now, sometimes that's necessary. When you have to speak, you have to speak. But when you have to be silent, you have to be silent. And the more you learn the art of silence, the more you learn the art of communication. And real communication always is rooted in silence. And real silence will produce effective communication. But it's two different states. You have to know when to be in a state of ma'almim alumim. Because when the mashpia is never in a state of Kabbalah, he dries out, withers away, right? And on the other hand, if you're always in a state of Kabbalah, then you don't emerge, which is also not the purpose. So it's that balance between the state of Yesh and the state of Bittl, the state of Hashmah and the state of Kabbalah. But there is the Vihine Anachno Ma'almim. So the Birur Hanitzitz, whenever something goes up out of its Yeshes, back to the point of Achdos, Back to the point of Bittl. Back to the point where Beis, Reish, Vav, Chav come together instead of separate. It's going to be expressed in a sense of silence, in a sense of Bittl. Why? Not because you don't exist, but because now your existence is in a higher plane. Now you're part of your mother's existence. Now you're part of your source's existence. And that's going to be expressed that there's no assertion of an autonomous I that is independent. But Dibur requires the opposite notion. The opposite notion is where the human being, where the human being emerges. Even in speaking itself, you could see it. The less decisive a person is when they speak, the less people will listen to them. Right? One of the mistakes that people get up when they speak is, um, uh, 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 my name is uh, really, oh, nobody knows the name, so why are they here? You understand what you just did? 
Most people, when they start speaking, the first ten, huh? The first ten minutes. No, I'm talking even people come to a conference. Yeah, a guy gets up. The first ten minutes usually should be deleted always. He's introducing himself. What are you introducing yourself? On every paper in front of every person, it says your name in Kiddush Lovon We know your name. Then he tells us what he does. Really? We're sitting here. We already heard it. We know a hundred times what you do. Don't tell this to me. All it means is that this is going to be pretty boring. <laughs> and he's probably going to say things that I know. So everybody takes out their phone within two, three seconds. But Mela, that's repetition. But then comes, eh, I don't know why I'm here today. I don't know why they invited me to speak, right? Whenever anybody says that, I always think, I also don't know. And in fact, if you take it seriously, you should take a sit down. But of course, he doesn't take it seriously. Then the worst is, I don't have anything to add. But suddenly, 45 minutes later, he had plenty to add. So what's all this? All this is like a certain uncomfort. It's an indecisiveness. It looks you, it looks humble, but it's not really humble. Because it, because, it's not even fluff. Yeah. The dibur always, is always connected with self-confidence. Like somebody once said, when you speak, it's three things. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Then tell it to them. Then tell them what you told them and then sit down. <laughs> That's it. If there's anything else, out. So Dibur is not the time to process myself. I'm not talking about a conversation you're having with somebody. You're trying to process yourself. We're talking here Dibur where you're in the state of a mashpia. Right? So the more, the more the eye is wholesome. This is what it is. It's about decisiveness. Leaders know when they speak, it's clear, decisive, sharp, articulate your message and be definitive. That's all a product of a yesh. Yes, my eye now has to be in charge. I need to take charge. That's why, that's what a mashpi is. A mother and father, when they're parenting, decisiveness, clarity is critical. When children feel that their parents are uh, wobbly, shaky, and the floor, the ground under their feet is not solid, the children become insecure. Even if parents are shaking inside, it's not easy for children to see that. Why? Because from the mashpia you want a certain solidity, a certain solidness. But every real mashpia has moments when you go back to the source of attachment in order to really make yourself wholesome. And in that moment, you become an infant. You become a child. <clears throat> Somebody once told me that Rav Kook, Rav Kook, at his mother's funeral, was sobbing. And she was an elderly woman. She was a very, she was a very old woman. And she passed away, and he was sobbing, uncharacteristically. So somebody asked him and said, Rav Cook, you know, uh, your mother was very old. She lived a long and ripe life. And uh, you know, he was chief rabbi at the time of Eretz Yisrael. What's this, uh, it's like this utter devastation, like complete, uh, not, not hopelessness, but just utter, utter devastation. So he said, he said, nobody ever will call me Avremela again. <laughs> nobody will ever call me Avremela again. You know? 
either it's Rav Kook, the one of the G'dayli Hadar, or Rav Kook something else, depends where you grew up. But uh, the word Avramala, right, that nobody's going to... And it's a very, there's something very vulnerable about that. You know, I'm not that any, I can't afford to come to a meeting and say, who are you? I'm Avremela. <laughs> it's not, but for his mother, right, he remained Avremela. He could be 60 or what, I don't know how old he was when she passed away. But, you know, he's still that little, uh, that little kid, despite accomplishments and genius and, uh, and leadership, etc. But there's uh, like that, uh, state of that little child. And fortunate is the adult who can go back to become that little child. Because when the adult starts taking himself too seriously, and he cannot be called that, like, Mommy, stop insulting me. I'm not Avremela. Call me Harav Hagon. Right? <laughs> then you're, you're taking yourself a little too seriously. So who's going to be affected by it? You and everyone who learns from you. Because really there's a wound over there. There's a shtickle wound over there. You don't know the art of silence. You don't know the... Stam, I remember I once saw an interesting video. It touched me. Uh, The New York Times, in 1992, the New York Times decided to do a full uh, magazine report about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So they asked him permission if they could video him they could video his room. So he said when he's there, he would rather not, but he's going to go to his father-in-law's resting place, to the oil, so they could go in and video. Then they asked permission if they could video him at the oil of his father-in-law. So he gave permission, as long as they're not in the room, he had a room over there where he would daven, as long as they could do it. So they stayed there. Nobody would do this, but it was a New York Times, so they stayed and they videoed for hours and hours. The Rebbe would spend a lot of hours at the oil of his father-in-law, the Rebbe Dayatz, many hours. And his last years, he would go there twice a week, and he was there, he would read most of the Tzetlach letters, he would read there and leave there. So uh, so they took a video. So recently somebody gave out a few, a few clips of it. So I remember when they came, I remember when they came, but I didn't see the video then, because it was just, the, the New York Times wanted it for their story. <laughs> So when the Rebbe finished the oil to be by his shver, he would go over to his mother. His mother is buried there. And uh, a few steps away. So this fellow, and it was already late at night, he stayed there very late. It was winter of 92, winter of 1992. It was like a few weeks before the Rebbe fell ill, before he had a stroke. So it was almost the last few weeks that he was there. The Rebbe had a stroke there also, but this was a few weeks before. Shvat. Shvat Tovshinon Beis like March time, 1992. So this fellow, whoever it was, it was late at night. Maybe it wasn't late at night. It was pitch dark, pitch dark. You know, a cemetery when it's pitch dark, it's pitch dark because there's no city lights. But the video had a good light. And it showed the Rebbe came out of the oil of his father and he went over to the gravesite of his mother. So I saw it. I saw when he went over to the gravesite of his mother, he, uh, it was fascinating He's standing there and he looked like a child. His face changed like a child and he was like talking to his mother. I don't know what he's, you can't see what he said. You see that he's saying something. I don't know if it's Tehillim or it's something else, but he's saying something. It didn't look like Tehillim because it wasn't like a long continuum. It was just like, um, 
a few words. Maybe it was a few psukim. I don't know. I, I shouldn't say it because I don't know what it was. I don't think anybody would know. But it was fascinating to me that that video it captured like a, if I could say so, like a little child, a vulnerable little child talking to his mother. And it was really incredible because the Rebbe at the time was almost 90 and it was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But uh, over there was like just like like he bent down a little bit and it was just very, like very simple. It looked very, very simple. Now he had a simplicity, Bechlal, even when he would talk to anybody, there was a certain simplicity. But I don't know, it was just a very interesting moment. So it's really part of greatness is that you know how to be small, really small. And small, I don't mean, you know, you say I'm small. Small means you can go back to that place where there's complete silence, where you lose yourself before the yesh ever emerges. And that's that, those two states in every person. Can you go back conceptually to being in the womb of your mother? Anybody? You know how to do that? Huh? Because that's where everything begins. It's so far-fetched, right? Therapists will say, huh? I'm there daily. Yes, I'm getting up. <laughs> okay. I have my umbilical cord to steal it. The umbilical cord is, okay. Well, your mother's keeping an eye on you. You told us the story at her yard site. About Ganeidin, you remember? I also remember. And going back to that state, my brother told me that it was once he saw a, a therapy session that somebody did, a very big therapist. He had people in the room, and it was complete silent. Everybody was silent, meditative state, closed eyes, but there was one noise. And it took him time. He had on a recording a heartbeat. A heartbeat. And it was bringing them back to that heartbeat, that one thing they can hear in the womb of the mother. And he said it was a brilliant, brilliant workshop. Really brought people back to that place. And asked them to go back to that innocence and realize that when they were there, the condition was that you're going to be protected. You know, and how that distortion happens sometimes even inside there, but usually at some point after birth. But if that, I don't mean to sound so idealistic, but if that continuum, if that could be continued after birth and the connection between the two states is wholesome, that's the connection between ma'almim alumim, which is the ilem, and the hashpa and the dibur. So that is the meaning of ma'almim alumim. We know how to be silent. We could be silent together. Yeah, we could be silent. People who have to speak always and can't be silent, they can't be makabal. They don't want to be makabal. It's too painful. They always have to speak. In a conversation, they'll never be silent. Generally, when people are sitting together in a room and they're silent together, there's something magical that happens. I know some of you do this routinely. Why? It's not even what. It's just the silence. The silence itself already challenges everybody, right? Just if you sit with somebody and you're not allowed to say a word, what happens? You can't cover up. So it's like interesting things happen. 
right, in an elevator. You ever go in an elevator? And there's six people, and they're going up 79 floors, right? Everybody gets awkward. Why? So today, everybody takes out the phone. But a few years ago, huh? I say hello. You say hello? Okay. Some people suggest you should start taking pictures of everybody. But I don't know if it's a good idea. Uh, so you talk about the weather. You talk about the weather. You used to be able to talk about the president, but that you don't do now. But the weather you can talk about. You don't want them to throw you off the elevator. But the weather you talk about, it's a cold day, it's a warm day. But generally, silence challenges people because it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not in a position of, of giving or teaching. It's just like that silence. It's, very, it's a, it's a powerful tool. They used to say by Chassidim, what's the difference between a sermon, a party, and a fabrengen? You know the difference? Huh? So you'll hear something pretty good. A sermon, a rabbi's sermon, yeah? One person speaks and nobody listens. A party, everybody speaks and nobody listens. And a fabrengen, nobody speaks and everybody listens. pretty profound when you can touch that place where nobody speaks and everybody listens that's a real fabrengen if not it's a sermon we know about sermons <laughs> one person speaks and everybody <laughs> sometimes he also doesn't listen <laughs> that's ma'almi ma'lum and that silence silence is always associated with bitlayash and we're not talking about silence you know I'm shy, I don't have what to say, I don't want to speak to you. Silence here is active. It's, it's, it's a proactive, it's real silence. It's not silence, you know, uh, I put down my head, I'm not speaking to you. The silence here is, it's active silence. It's what's called a thundering silence. <laughs> you know, a thundering silence. The silence is, Gireta Sachmer. The silence is far more communicative than the words. The pause, the pauses. They once asked a, I saw, there was a very famous pianist. He was world-renowned, and a colleague of him asked him, what's your success? How did you reach that success that I have not? I read notes as well as you, I practiced. What is it? We play the same notes. And he looked at him and he said, it's the pauses. It's the pauses that makes all the difference. You know, that pause in between the notes. Because that's where... Most people fail. I can go, you know, I could clap. Boom, 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 boom. Ta, 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 ta. But it's the pause. And by the way, the same is the communication. You know, you speak, you have all the words, but the pauses, that's where you lose it. Pauses are critical. Rashi says, right? Litein revach, vayikra, bein parsha parsha. It's the pause. Shabbos, what's Shabbos? Shabbos is the pause of the week. It's always about the pause. It's always about the silence. Pause is the silence that allows for real absorption. You can have everything there, but without the pause, you're missing that essential glue. The pregnant pause, exactly. Pregnant is the word. Yeah. It's almost you allow everyone to seize. Like it has to seize. It has to almost go back to the source. And go back to the mother's food and then come back. Now these are very subtle things, but psychologically they have a very deep impact. When there is that pause, it's a completely different experience. And between the Siddur and the 
סטו מהפסוחה. יש, 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 In other words, we have to recognize that this is a connection in a world, right, where there was a Shvira Sakelem. So there was a birth. There is that element of Yesh. And then you connect it from that place. It's not a mistake that the Beis and the Resh are separate. That's why there's Avoidah Vini Anachnum Alma Malumim. It's the Avoidah, but it's an Avoidah, because that's the world we live in. So yes, we want to always connect it. But we're connecting it from a place of perceived separateness. Right? Our instinctive feeling of the world is separateness, even fragmentation, even brokenness, even loneliness. And then we connect. Our job is to go into the field and to bring it back to a place of, of pregnancy. And then in the separateness, you remain united. Right? Because it's not about obliterating differences. It's not about, let's just all go back to the womb and cease to be. It's the ability to be able to have that perspective and then bring that into the into the world, into the physical world. So there is that that balance. So it's really vacillating between two. Uh, the Gemara says in Masechta uh, Sukkah that by Simchas Beis Hashem the Tanoim and the Amiraim used to juggle. A major part of the dancing on Sukkahs was juggling. Right? The Mishnah says Reb Shem Ben Gamliel would throw eight eight Avukas uh, Shaloir. What are they called? Eight torches, fire torches, eight of them. And then there was Levi and Abaya. This one did eggs, eggs, and this one did wine, cups of wine without spilling them. And when you look at the names, the Gemara gives the roster of names, you're dealing with the greatest spiritual leaders of the generation. Now imagine today, right? Some great rabbis would get up at uh, Siyam Ashas, let's say, right? And instead of taking the mic, yeah, they would actually start juggling. Yeah? It would be great, huh? The island would get a little uh, excited, it would, yeah? But uh, it would be, who would even think of this? When you look in the Mishnah, you see Rav Shemimang Amliel was considered the head of the Sanhedrin. It was the highest spiritual, he was juggling. <laughs> so it's just, a, it's a, it's, that itself is an interesting phenomenon. But apparently this was a major part of Simchas Beis Sheva, the, the juggling. So in Chiddus it says that juggling represents something very profound. One goes up and the other one comes down. But as it comes down, a moment later it's going to go back up and the other one is going to come down. And that's the cycle of juggling. And that represents exactly what the Balatanya is saying here. You have to come down. Right? But a moment later you have to be ready to go back up. And the reason you're going back up is not to stay up to come back down. But if you just stay down, the juggling act is gone. You come down, but you always have to be able to go back up to refresh. What's called rotsoy and shoiv. Rotsoy is the ascent, and shoiv is the return. And each one, it comes down, but it has the ability to go back up and then come down again. And as you're juggling, you're not doing it with one, because that's not called juggling. You're always doing it with two. One is up, and one is down.
Because in life, simultaneously, there's a part of the soul that must be up, and a part of the soul that must be down. Or if I could use a little bit of a different language, there uh, those who used to remember about the reality of a radio, for some it's all of our shalom, so there's something called AM and FM. One of them is AM and FM. When you dial, you go to an AM channel, the world is always coming to an end within the next 10 minutes. Right? You listen to any of the talk show hosts, within the next 10 minutes, the world is coming to an end. If you're a liberal, Trump is bringing it to an end. And if you're a conservative or you're a pro-Trump, so the liberals are bringing the world to an end. But within the next 10 minutes, yeah, get ready for, get ready for your own funeral and the rest of the world because they're just taking the world and this. This one, it's global warming, right? And this one, it's something else. But that's AM. In AM, every 10 minutes it changes and there's always crisis and destruction is doom. Doomsday is here. You go to FM. <laughs> for hours ruyik, ruyik, ruyik. so some people live in AM mode I call them AM people the world is always coming to an end it's crisis time they're in life, they're rushing, they're upset they're consumed and then there's FM people relaxed, relaxed, they go from one kiddush to another kiddush to another kiddush mm-hmm. somehow the job is always waiting for them, there's never an issue and you know, worst comes to worst the shviga will pay the bills they're FM mode, right? Which one is it right now? FM people, there's something very geschmack about it. Now, if you're married, and one is an AM, one is an FM, good luck, right? One, if you have to go to the airport, already three days before the stress, two hours before you're going, the world is coming to an end. If the taxi is not there, within the moment you called it, it's disaster. You know what I mean? And FM people, they're like, <laughs> he didn't pack yet. You know what I mean? He packs on the way to the airport. He's relaxed, he's calm. You're having guests for Shabbos, AM, FM, oh my God, right? FM is, oh yeah, I'll go Friday afternoon to the store and bring some food. AM people are different. It's just a very, and everything is different at work, at home, in your psychology. So what's the right way to live? AM people accuse FM people of being in denial, detached, irresponsible, Hefke Jungen, Right? And FM people accuse AM people of just being stressed out, overwhelmed, too entrenched in the world, and everything gets to them, and, and they just never have menuchas and nefesh. And it's like, relax, chill out. Why does one attract the other? Because huh? it's your bitter. <laughs> it's the bitter. <laughs> Short wave radio, only at night, yeah. But medium wave. Huh? That's true. Sometimes better than AM. Yeah, FM is, people accuse FM as being lazy. Sometimes they're not lazy at all. They just operate differently. They think about it. They reflect. When they give the punch, it may be a very powerful punch. But till they get, if that punch, it takes time. They're relaxed. It's very different. So, so who's right? Who's right? So as, that's what juggling is. Juggling is, if you only live in the world of FM, right, you are sometimes detached. If you only live in the world of, huh? Beautiful music. music. If you only live in the world of AM, you're sometimes very overwhelmed and stressed. That's what juggling means. Juggling is always three. One is responsible. Okay. One is in the middle. It's connected. 
So what, that's, that's the Simchas Beisasheva. That when the soul comes into the body, it always has the ability to go up. Like Rebbe Primishlana says, as Mitzugebunden Oibn, Fatmanishtuntin. You connect it above, you don't fall below. There's always that moment where you don't take the world seriously. You don't ever, you never take the world too seriously. You have to always go to a place, what's called Ayin, Bittl, Achtos. Be connected there. On the other hand, if you stay there, it's very nice and very sweet. But there are certain responsibilities that you often neglect because relationships requires that I connect to your world. I don't just turn on the music and say everything is fine. If somebody's struggling with something, I have to be able to go there. I have to be able to connect. I have to be able to be empathetic. And by definition, it's going to be, affect me at some level. You know, somebody's just always smiling. can get very nerve-wracking. Like, I want to feel the connection. So how do you do that? That's a very profound art of Ratzi V'shoif. At any moment, you can switch. That's the key. You're never completely uh, abducted or captured by one or the other. Because each one of them, when you're stuck in one or the other, you're stuck ultimately in your own orbit. There's always that vacillation between Ratzay and Shoiv, between Yesh and Ayin, between Bittel and Yeshes, between silence and words. I think Rabbi Yitzchak Varka once said, the definition, Rabbi Tzak was one of the great Hasidic masters, and he think he said, the definition of a Jew is that you, you, you can dance uninhibitedly while you're sitting in one place. You could scream out loud while you're completely silent, and you remain alone even when you're with a thousand people. Something like that. Even with a thousand people, you remain alone. Alone means you remain true to yourself. So one of the things he said was, you could scream loud when you're quiet. <laughs> I don't know if he meant that, but that's what he said. So that's the second, those are the two, those are the two stages. Okay. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.